Hey guys, what's up? It is week uh, 306. I have some reviews for you. And uh, I have the opening of my 1981 here. I posted it on my channel before, but you'll get to see it ahead of the 1981 movies this week. And I've been reaching out to guests and everything possible guests for the 1981s. I'll make it more in-depth this time. There'll be a lot more um, 1981 videos with with guests and stuff like that. I've reached out to a bunch of people, and I think that I got some good guests lined up. And hopefully I'll get some more as well. Um, I don't know when I'll start getting into those and everything, but probably within the next couple weeks, three, four, five, maybe a month, maybe a month, who knows. But so let's hop into these reviews. And the first one up is uh, Jet Li, The Legend of Fong uh, Se-Yuk. Um, this is part one I'm going to cover first. Now, this is, wait, made 1993, and this both of them were made in 93, actually. So, okay, this one is another uh, one from Ronin Flicks, and they, they put out another Jet Li double feature, which I enjoyed. So, again, like I told you, I've seen a handful of Jet Li movies, some of the ones that came to America, but watching some of these, this one was really nice, kind of like seeing them in, like, the China films and every, Chinese films and all that kind of stuff. So, this one's a period piece, like a lot of these Chinese ones are. It's a golden harvest. So, uh, basically... Jet Li is like this badass fighter. He's a young kid. His father is very strict. His mother is kind of like free-spirited and fun, but also like the toughest person in the entire village. And Jet Li's always getting in trouble. Him and a couple of his friends are always picking fights. Not picking fights. To anybody who does anything upsetting or uh, they, they basically fight them and always win. Uh, but what happens is at one point, Jet Li starts to like kind of be interested in the government official's daughter. And that's kind of like this relationship that's kind of forbidden or whatever. Um, but one day to prove, that he's the toughest guy in the village there is this kind of uh this i guess a competition where it's this kind of giant wooden structure that's really high up in there and you basically have to fight the not the emperor but the government official's wife who's like a super badass and knock her off this and then you get the chance to marry the daughter so Jet Li decides to do it not because he wants to marry the daughter he actually doesn't even really get a good look at her just because he wants to prove himself so he goes up there and then when he gets a glimpse of the daughter finally he decides to drop out but of course there's a common of heirs it's not really the daughter this one has a lot of like silliness and comedy in that kind of vein um but it complicates things which is really cute in this movie because the mother goes there and does it but disguises herself as a man and that causes all sorts of weird kind of love relationships and triangles and all these kind of things um now the father is actually involved with like this secret uh you know coup to try to overthrow you know the emperor of china and everything like that that brings in like a really horrible villain who's ruthless and you see him in the opening just like disposed of all these these uh these like rebels or whatever throws one in the fire it's really effective stuff good way to set up the villain and by the time you know he comes back around you almost have forgot about him and then he's like oh he enters you're like oh this is going to be trouble he's definitely going to square up with Jet Li and, and the mother and all this kind of stuff so um it creates this kind of weird kind of family dynamic where eventually you know Jet Li uh has to marry this government uh government official's daughter but it turns out it was the girl he wanted after all it, it's really cute there's a lot of fighting uh, uh, kind of like a, a weird kind of group of family kind of form here and at the end of it I thought this one was really entertaining there's a great moment there's some really badass hero moments for Jet Li in this where he walks down like a, a alleyway and just whoops everyone's ass where he has like a, a bow with like 30 arrows on it that kind of stuff is all in here 
Um, but there's a really good uh, touching moment with his friend. So I thought this was really interesting. Um, the special features, um, I can't remember. It's an interview with a stunt uh, coordinator and the director. And they mentioned that this is actually kind of like a, a take on an ancient kind of uh, Chinese character that was in film. Um, what Fong, uh, uh, Fong, uh, Yuck. Uh, Sayak? Would it be Sayak or Sayak? But, uh, so, so this character, they changed some things around. They made certain characters more, you know, likable or more villainous and all that kind of stuff. So this is like, goes all the way back to old Chinese films and black and white kind of era. So that's pretty interesting how they carry it on. And that's weird because Jet Li kind of was in the one kind of semi-remake of Bruce Lee's movie as well. So it seems like Jet Li is kind of like that next generation. You know, this is like the patching of the uh, passing of the torch in like the late 80s, early 90s for Jet Li. And that's really cool. And his, his stunts are good. I mean, his fighting I don't know how much of the stunts he does himself, but probably quite a bit. He definitely is a, a can do the martial arts on camera, and it looks always really good. And he's got a good presence about him. You can watch this in is it Cantonese, I believe, Cantonese or English, yeah. And and you can the English dub is of course a little bit more ridiculous, but it is what it is. I enjoyed Legend of Fong Sayak. I have a trouble with that name. I'm sorry, but yeah, uh, it looks good. It sounds good, and it's pretty entertaining. Good stuff. Okay, so now we're going to talk about Legend 2, a.k.a. the Legend of Fong Suk Yuk 2. And this carries on right where the first one left off. Kind of we have this idea that, you know, he's going to go on and train and join, like, the Rebel Alliance. So he goes there, and he kind of enters in, and there's obviously some sort of weird power struggle going on. One of the characters there, he is made a villain. You can tell just by his demeanor, how he looks. This guy doesn't seem on the up and up almost immediately. So essentially he starts to kind of think something's going on and there is like kind of a coup, of course, right? And there's a traitor and they're betraying them for the emperor. All this kind of stuff happens until, you know, it's, it's also a comedy of heirs with two wives in here now. So now Jet Li has two gr- two women fighting over him, getting jealous of each other, all that kind of stuff. Uh, really fun moment. Now, again, this is a movie where like uh, the mother comes back and she's excellent in here. And there's points in this film where I was genuinely concerned for certain characters because, you know, in the first one, they didn't uh, they didn't really shy away from like killing a couple people that you truly cared about in the movie. So you're wondering if this kind of same thing could happen here. And this is the last one. There's not a sequel to carry on this. So you're like, they could really end some of the main characters here. And that would be pretty tragic. The mother is kind of like, you know, the the highlight of the movie. She's really funny to me and she's entertaining. And it's really nice to see these movies kind of like in the first one, they definitely had like a homos, like a queer relationship in it, which was kind of strange. I wouldn't say homosexual, but queer relationship is how I think it would be defined. And it was interesting because 1993 Chinese film, not likely, right? Or maybe it's Hong Kong. Maybe this one was filmed in Hong Kong, but still not really very easy to pass the censors and that kind of thing. And this one, they definitely have, you know, a lot of badass female characters taking charge. And I like that too. Although in the first one, they do have the kind of very, you know, disciplinary, like fob patriarchal figure, but that's just kind of how it was apparently, uh, you know, in these kind of films and everything like that. So, and, and this one, you know, it seems like the women kind of take forward since there's more female characters in here that have more importance than males almost besides Jet Li. But the main villain in here is great. He's really villain he's tough um the end fight scene is really cool and as a classic trope you know the hero gets injured in any western or any you know martial arts film the hero gets injured or he he loses badly and now he must go away and train and rebuild himself and relearn how to fight to defeat the enemy that's like the number one trope in westerns and and kung fu and samurai all these kind of movies like this i enjoy it you know if you like the genre you will enjoy this one so yeah the second one i would say is just about as good as the first one and you really like the characters that they bring back so that's always a plus. Check these out if you've not seen them. Both are really fun. So good stuff. Okay, we're diving into the next title in the Lucas Mudinson collection. This big giant monstrosity here. And I don't mean monstrosity as an insult or anything. And the one we're covering here is Container. 
This is another one of Lucas's kind of uh, uh, artsy kind of experimental films along with A Hole in the Heart. And this one's even more experimental, even more avant-garde. So basically what we have here is uh, you can watch in English or Swedish, and I imagine there's quite a different impact on both. But uh, it's essentially just a black and white uh, video footage with narration over the entire thing. And we definitely have kind of this uh, character that is... Uh, appears to be male, but sees himself as a female. And they talk about these kind of things and how they feel. And it starts to be almost delusions of grandeur because they almost have, like I would say, um, basically an image of themselves that's with them throughout the entire film. And then you see them. And then you have these moments where they're saying these things like, I'm beautiful, I went to Paris, and I spent $10,000 on just this ring. And and it's just obviously not what is happening or what what they believe in their, their true image inner self or what their inner self should be it's it's kind of a strange deal and there's also these uh, ideas of old kind of things collecting junk and, and garbage uh, dumps and all these kind of things and there's some like really depressing moments where the character is obviously you know uh, dressed up a as a female um, and they're uh, drunk at this party or this small apartment party or what's going on and they keep trying to force themselves on other people and they're, they're just kind of being pushed away and it's just kind of really really depressing because obviously this character is saying these things maybe these different things and then you're seeing the reality of it but then sometimes you'll see like almost like this character their inner self kind of you know carrying that person on their back and it's just symbolic um it's interesting it is interesting it's visually it's it's unique and weird and and it's not as disturbing it's not really a disturbing film like the last one i would say a hole in the heart was disturbing just the the stuff that they showed and the imagery and and some of the the monologues and stuff were just obviously you know personal in, in the film to the characters and a little upset uh, uh, upsetting to be honest and this one is depressing and sad and kind of bleak in a lot of ways but you know i think that it's probably ahead of its time this is 2006 so you know when you look at movies like in 2006 were they really addressing that stuff think think of it this way you know hostile came out in 2005 or a year later it was kind of released in 2006 the same year and how they kind of handle certain things not that that movie not that that was Eli Roth's intention to be negative in that kind of way but you're just saying like the way they handle certain you know touchy subjects and stuff like that is completely different you know so this this director obviously had a little bit more finesse or understanding or at least was willing to put it in his films so um, like I said um, it's interesting it's different and this isn't for everybody I am reminded of a joke my friend made he does not like art films he does not like any of these kind of these kind of films that are art and avant-garde and he said i'm not watching this artsy crap one time it's essentially you're going to put it in it's going to be a black and white movie where a guy is sorting m&ms by color in black and white and i just thought it was so funny obviously because it's so on the nose but it's obviously a point he's trying to make but just making fun of these kind of art films but i wouldn't necessarily call it this and i do enjoy art films but yeah this one is just uh it is very artsy and very experimental and just not for everybody it's not approachable for everybody either you know what i mean not every movie is for everybody but uh at least take an interest in, in, in film if you like this director give it give it a look so you know i do believe there's some special features on here so we have um here we go. New interviews with Lucas Moodinson on both films, moderated by film programmer Sarah Lutton. Lucas Moodinson, a masterclass, an interview with director filmed at London National Film and Television School in 2004. Hole in My Second Heart, a behind-the-scenes featurette from 2004. Inside the Container Crypt, 2007 featurette in the themes of Container. Theatrical trailers, image galleries for both films. So if you like this one or you're interested in this box set, this is a pretty interesting movie. Um, there's only two more to go, and I'm enjoying it. And they're interesting, and I'm learning. I'm learning stuff, guys. But uh, yeah, check it out. 
Okay, here we go. I had heard a lot about this one. Uh, my friend uh, Christian Mickelson, Michelson, I believe is how you say his name. I can't think of the podcast. I'll put a link below. But he does this podcast of, uh, you know, kind of extreme films and talks about a lot of different films. And he interviewed the writer, producer, star of this film, Vincent, what is it? Um, I, I don't want to make sure I say his name right. I don't want to mess it up. Vincent LaRusso. Um, and this is a 1995 movie, uh, Streets of Darkness. So this is strange. Now, this is a bizarre one here. Because this is two films on here, Just the Chance from 1993, or 92, and Streets of Darkness from 1995. This is released by SRS. They had a limited Blu-ray run. Now the DVD's coming out. So here's what I find charming and different about this film, right? It's an SOV film. So you immediately think low-budget horror film, kind of gore film, experimental film, or maybe like a, a, a transgressive kind of horror cinema or something like that, or just direct-to-video market, you know, dirt cheap or German splatter. You think that's what, that, the idea you have for SOV, right? No, this is different. This is a strange one. So Just a Chance, like I said, was a 1992 movie. It was a morality tale written by uh, LaRusso, and he got Bill Graffay to direct it. Bill Graffay did tons of movies, including Impulse and Mako Jaws of Death. and He's just done uh, a lot of films, a lot of cool films. Doing Whiskey Mountain, I believe, is a, is a Graffay film. Or is that, is that Robain? I always mix up these two, but I believe he did do Whiskey Mountain, which is cool with um, Christopher George in it. So um, am I mixing that up? Anyways, here we go. Uh, so, basically, this film is about 30 minutes long, and it follows the story of LaRusso, who has a friend, and it's based on a true story according to the writer and everything like that. And it follows him in here, and he has a friend, and he starts to get involved with the drug scene and all this kind of stuff, and he has, you know, basically carries out some revenge, and he ends up, you know, in jail. It's very kind of like uh, realistic in, in a lot of ways, and kind of minimal, but still effective. You know, it's a low-budget SOV movie, but it has a different kind of subjects, more of a morality tale. And if you listen to him in the special features and everything, and on that podcast, he talks about getting this put on like the Christian Television Network, which is a pretty big get. He got it put in Blockbuster, so it's kind of a also a look into how different the times were in the early '90s when it came to video distro, independent video distro. And you know, he's friends with Tim Ritter as well, and Tim Ritter helped you know get this SRS DVD and Blu-ray rolling. So like Tim Ritter also has probably a lot to say about that. He used to drive to video stores and, and you know talk to the the owners and get his tapes in there. But this guy got it put in Block. Blockbuster, you know, and that's pretty interesting stuff. So, though I will say that Streets of Darkness is kind of the bigger film. Of course, it's it's not it's like a feature length, uh, ninety minutes or something along those lines. It has a really big cast, and what I like about it is, you know, although it is low budget, it's an SOV, right? That is not a horror film, which is interesting. It's very regional. It's Miami, Florida. It, it definitely reflects the time it was made with the characters and the backgrounds and all the locations. So there's that. It has the regional quality. And you usually think, you know, you know, the Florida films are a lot. You know, Graffay made a lot of movies in Florida. Tim Ritter made movies in Florida. And then you have other stuff like Exploitation. You have, you know, a couple Ken Wiederhorn movies in Florida. So you have like a big mixture of films made in Florida. So then on top of that, like I said, it is a morality tale. This one is more, you know, actioned up, more sex, more violence, more crime element, kind of like, uh, you know, a lower, lower rent, like budgeted Martin Scorsese kind of style deal. And then on top of that, it does seem almost, not, not to be an insult, but like a vanity project, like a, a character, you know, like a Sling Blade or something, you know, not as a caliber of Sling Blade, obviously Sling Blade was like such a big, huge hit, you know, uh, somebody who writes something for themselves and like has something to say, has some personal things in there, you know, and wants to get their message out, wants to give themselves a chance to be out there and show that 
what they're capable of, right? Um, though this one is positive because in a lot of ways, you know, LaRusso is actually in good shape. A lot of these times you'll see these movies where somebody makes themselves a star and it's 10 years too late and they're just got like this big beer gut and they're like acting like they're real ripped and muscular and like, yeah, like, yeah. And then like, what is going on? Like LaRusso's in good shape. He's a, he's a strong looking guy. He looks the part. So basically he is this kind of guy. Um, it's a sequel to, uh, um, just a chance. And he was in prison in that film at the end. He's getting released here and he basically, uh, has, a, a character in this, uh, what is it? Um, I believe Colombian or Cuban, Cuban drug lord or something like that. I don't remember. Or they Mexicans. I can't remember exactly the details here. But he has trouble with them because you know they do stuff to his mom. They cause problems. They're also causing problems with you know the Italian mob. But the Italian, this mob family here owes him some favors because of who he actually killed. So he starts to get involved with you know uh, a, a girl who's some, one of these kind of higher ups, uh, you know, uh, side thing, and then he starts to date one of the mob boss's daughters so it kind of creates this whole crazy like turmoil within there so there's a lot of him you know collecting money getting in fights being a badass and stuff like that but there's a lot of these kind of crazy offbeat like kind of mobster characters and it does feel like kind of like a low budget martin scorsese movie in miami with you know not all the acting is is, is top caliber but some of it's pretty solid you know a lot of like really over the top kind of italian kind of style characters which i enjoy right but it does have that sov regional quality at the same time so it makes it kind of unique in the way that you really don't see you know these kind of personal regional weird kind of stories like this as a crime story i mean there's there's low budget crime movies like laws of gravity and stuff but you know even that was higher budgeted not being that was probably shot on film and everything and, and just had probably more name recognition and stuff I had like peter green in it and some other people but you know you're thinking super dirt cheap sov movies and i had never heard of this film it's not like a movie that i knew existed so it was also interesting in that way you know and like i wonder if it's anything like uh uh what is that one from uh uh, the UK that made the video section three NAS bodily grievous, grievous harm or grievous, grievous GBH GBH. I, I I've never seen that, but just hearing about that sounds kind of familiar, but I think that's a little bit more gory than this. But anyways, it is kind of a charming story and it's got a good story to it too. You know, like behind the scenes is what I'm saying. Like behind the scenes, it's a very interesting story. It's a pretty decent story too. You know, it's a typical kind of mob story and it ends kind of in a way, I don't want to spoil it because rip it off, but you know, not a rip off. I would spoil it, but it's similar. It's not a ripoff. It's similar to another kind of uh, mob movie that ends that way, um, made a couple years before, um, which I'm a big fan of. But no, I was I was happy with this one, and the girls on the cover are not actually in the movie. Um, but yeah, a anyways, there is a plenty of nudity in this one, and like there's a lot of you know Miami beach bodies running around here, so I think that will get people's attention. And you know, there's there's one character in here who's this kind of character who's like he's got this real raspy voice, this Italian guy. He's a ridiculous character. He's entertaining though. Uh, but yeah. Um, there's a lot of narration and it does have kind of a bizarre feel to it. You know what I mean? Like, cause it's so personal and regional and different than a lot of the other stuff that people are like, what is this? They might find like, there's a sense of like comedy to it, but not purposely done. And I don't mean that as an insult just because, and I don't, I don't really find the comedy in it either for the most part. You know what I mean? I'm not laughing at the movie, but it is different. It's unique in that kind of way. You know what I mean? Like, so I, and like it's some of the side characters are over the top. Like they're like the uh, the Mexican drug dealer. He's completely over the top. You know, he's almost like Tomas. He's like Tomas Milan. Like as if like one of those characters from those like Polizia Tetsi movies, but just even more ridiculous. So, like if you threw if Tomas Milan was in it playing that character, you'd buy it. 
So let's just put it that way. But Streets of Darkness has a bunch of features on here too. You got the prequel, like I said, Just a Chance, directed by Bill Griffey. You got commentary tracks, you got interviews, and it's a long interview. And Tim Ritter's involved with that interview too. It's like 45 minutes long. So if you're fans of Streets of Darkness or you never heard of it or you're SOV enthusiast or a crime, low budget crime enthusiast, then get, give it a look. I mean, like, is it like being a masterpiece? Like, you know, is it a Scorsese or something? No, of course not. It's not a Martin Scorsese, lost Martin, like a lost Martin Scorsese film, but it is uh, different. It's a nice look at, you know, SOV movies that aren't, you know, the typical SOV movies. So check it out. Okay, now we're going to hop into those 1981 movies. Woe be unto him who opens one of the seven gateways to hell, because through that gateway, evil will invade the world. Day. 
is a curse that'll live on and on And no one will know as the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago And no one will know as the years come and go Of the horror from long time ago First up is a slasher, of course. It's 1981, after all, and this is Graduation Day uh, with the wonderful Christopher George. Linnea Quigley is also in here. Is there anybody else I'm forgetting in here uh, when it comes to actors and actresses? Directed by Herb Freed, who I believe did a couple more movies. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but Graduation Day. So I saw this years ago. It was distributed by Troma originally from Troma. Of course. And, you know, I'd watch the DVD and then, yeah, Vinegar Syndrome put it out on Blu-ray. I was like, oh, I'm going to upgrade Graduation Day. And I've not watched it since. I bought it right when it came out. So here we go. All right. It's a kind of a, a, a kind of a slasher. Pretty typical, you know, I mean, but it's 1981. So I guess it's not as typical as what we've learned, even though it does feel like a lot of the slashers around this time. You know, it has the most similarities to Fatal Games, which I believe is 84. So what we have here is a group of, you know, uh, high school kids that are on the track team. They're on the like kind of Olympics gymnastics team. Christopher George is their coach. Love Christopher George. He's in stuff like City of the Living Dead, uh, Grizzly, Whiskey Mountain. Just a great actor, executioner, uh, exterminator. So just a really good actor in a bunch of movies. He's got a great demeanor to him, kind of a grouchy voice. He's the coach. And uh, one day during a very competitive race, he's screaming at his player, this girl, to make the run. You got to beat 30 seconds. And she makes it, but she dies right on the field and everything. She has a blood clot. Um, the coach is disbarred from coaching. He's kind of washed up. He's still teaching woodshop as the coach should teach at school, right? Reminds me of student bodies, which is funny, which is from 81 as well, where you have the, the woodshop teacher. We're going to make close head bookends. And, you know, of course, Christopher George would be making the woodshop teacher. He'd be him. Okay. So basically that's what happens at the same time, you know, um, because this girl died, her sister is coming out of the military and coming back and everything like that. And she had a boyfriend and all these other people on the track team and the, the gymnastics team, whatever the hell the team is. The, what, it's a blanket kind of team. There's like five or six, well, there's like a, maybe a, about 10 in this team. So fairly quickly, they start to get picked off, even down to the, like the piece of, like the pitcher getting crossed off in a red X, right? And so we only have a couple people left and we're like, who is the killer? Is it the coach? Is it the boyfriend? Is it the sister? Is it the drunken stepfather who's absolutely over the top? Is it the mother? So you got a lot of red herrings, and they even throw it a different way where you think it's somebody else, and at the very end, you know, it's not quite, oh, well, well they kind of try to trick you and everything like that. But, uh, yeah, and it ends, and it has kind of a psycho kind of reveal here a little bit, of course. Can you not have a psycho? There's always going to be a psycho reveal in 50% horror films. But, uh, yeah, the kills are decent. There's some there's some gory kills in here. Uh, nothing that will knock your socks off. We're not seeing, you know, Savini-style effects or the the peak Savini style effects we would see from the year before and this year, um, like in the Prowler and Maniac and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and even Eyes of a Stranger. So, but the effects are fine. They work. You know, I believe there's a severed head, if I'm not mistaken. They're pretty gory, enjoyable. And uh, Linnea Quigley is in here. Of course, there's some nudity. There's some sex. Uh, this is a really solid, really, um, I don't want to be rude, but it's a run-of-the-mill average slasher film from the time. 
I enjoy it. Do probably to Christopher George screaming at kids. There's a great part where there's a photographer that shows up and she's doing all these gymnastics and he's like, and the photographer's like, yeah, just kind of take it easy on yourself. And Christopher George's like, no, you do the whole thing. And he's just like freaking out and it's, it's pretty great. Um, yeah, this one's entertaining. I like it. And I remember the killer. I saw this years ago when, uh, whenever the DVD was put out, probably in like 1999. And I still remember the killer verbatim. I remember, uh, just having that feeling, you know, and then when I watched it and I a hundred percent remember the killer and I never remember the killer in a lot of these movies. There's sometimes I'll watch a slasher movie five years ago. I'll pop it in from the eighties and I'll be like, oh, I never seen this one. Like, and I was like, wait, I already seen this movie. Like, and I'll take like 20 minutes into it. Graduation day for me, for some reason is memorable. Maybe because it's in the heyday, maybe because it's, I saw it when I was 12 or 13 years old, but Hey, it's graduation day. It looks good. And sounds good. There's a couple special features on here. How could there not be new 4k restoration? Are we going to get a 4k upgrade? Um, video interviews with lead actress, patch McKenzie, director, Herb Freed, Producer David Brow and editor Martin J. Sandoff. Commentary track with David Brown. Good commentary track with Hysteria Continues, which I enjoy. But uh, here on here, there is a funny... Um uh, Patch McKenzie talks about, you know, how she's done a bunch of movies, but people come up to her and want her to sign stuff for graduation day. That's the one thing people love their horror movies. Like I, I obviously speaking from, uh, you know, experience, but people adore their horror films, right? So that seems to last forever. So if you're an actor or actress out there, get yourself a couple horror films when you're young and, uh, the autograph world will be open to you forever. It seems. Okay. The next one is the house where death lives, AKA delusion. And I think this was a TV film. It sure as hell feels like a TV film. Don't know too much about this one, to be brutally honest. So I put this one in, and it's relatively kind of just like very standard stuff here. So there's uh, some narration, and this girl is writing her, um, I believe her father, telling her, you know, mother was very sick. She finally died. I think you should know, yada, yada, yada. And then she proceeds to get this job uh, working for... Um, Geez, Joseph Cotton, of all people, and he's really good in this. I love Joseph Cotton in this film uh, from stuff like Barren Blood and the previous years, The Hearst. And, uh, you know, he's in a million movies. He's a classic actor. So essentially, and he's in the Umberto Lenzi movie as the, the kind of crippled uh, wheelchair bound, a uh, blind, blind kind of character. It's funny because he's in a wheelchair in this one. So I wonder if he was having health problems around this time. Not sure. So essentially, she gets this job taking care of him as a housekeeper, kind of a live-in nurse. And there's a bunch of other people that like, there's like a butler and a cook and all these kind of eccentric people there. Soon she finds out that his uh, strange son is there. And uh, he, he's not, yeah, I guess you'd say strange. He's mentally ill and he causes a lot of problems. There seems to be other mentally ill people there as well. They bring in kind of the young kid, um, his grandson that moves in and he's way older. And there starts to be kind of this strange kind of friction relationship between the nurse and the, and the grandson who doesn't really look like a grandson, who's really sheltered and doesn't know what a skateboard is. All sorts of weird things here. And sooner or later, you know, people start to end up dying. You know, somebody who loves to jump into the wine cellar, gets the wine cellar pushed on them, all these kind of things, and people end up dying. The bad thing about it is the night scenes are pretty dark, so sometimes you're like, was that a character? Which character was that? Why is he dead? Like, And I literally caught myself be like, which character was it? I lost it. I couldn't tell who died right there. Stuff like that, but the reveal is pretty bonkers, pretty entertaining. It's got actually Joseph Cotton trying to pull a fast one, one <laughs> coming out of a closet with a cane. I, I don't want to spoil too much, but that part I actually thought was great. Um, yeah, it's an interesting weird film, and it actually has some similarities to the Sun and the Cyan Sano film, believe it or not. Um, 
what is that one called? The Strange Circus. It has similarities to a strange circus in plot and remembrance and stuff, and I kind of dug that. You know, the reveal is actually good stuff. So this is Delusion, which is a good title, or The House Where Death Lives. I prefer Delusion, um, to be honest. I think it's just a more, you know title that reflects the film a little bit more but check it out it's probably on youtube um it's decent stuff okay and the last one that i'm talking about from 1981 is tracking aka ghost soldier now in letterbox they list this as 1987 which i'm not sure which one is at the tape or was made in 81 i don't know is in that movie database wrong regardless i'm covering it this is a french film this is by the same director who made revenge of the living dead girls which is from 86 if you guys have not seen revenge of the living dead girls do yourself a favor uh get a couple drinks and watch it it is weird it is bonkers it is silly and make sure to watch the alternative endings if you can um it is a weird, bizarre film about girls being killed by, what, toxic milk or some shit? I can't remember, but it's weird. And tracking is also really bizarre. Now, this one reminded me of the film that came out a few years ago called Braid. Remember that, where the three girls are in the house, and it's not all as it seems? So what we have here is three girls that are kind of left alone, and there's supposed to be a, a woman, like an aunt, who comes in and checks on them from now and then, and the father would call and everything like that. But what happens is one of them, uh, they start to tell a story about how um, one of their fathers years ago during the war raped this woman with a wine bottle, and then it kind of reenacts it. They kind of reenact it, and for some strange reason or whatever, it kind of brings the ghost there, or they kind of bring the ghost to life whatever it is amalgamation of their thoughts or they're they're carrying it out or the ghost was there the whole time whatever it is it is bizarre and strange and imagination run wild turn real shit so this ghost or this ghost soldier starts to kind of rape them molest them grab their breast whatever and they can't escape it no matter what and it even gets to the point where they start to you know kind of tie their delusions if they are that they could be, there's some realness to them. It's strange. And you could probably dive into this. If like a Cat Allinger or somebody was like to dissect this movie, it'd be pretty interesting to be honest. But, uh, so, so there's all these kind of elements in there that are super weird. And it does this thing like almost towards the end of the film where it's like three months later and you're like, what are we doing here? This is weird. And like, it, it, it leaves this kind of narration at the very end, like this kind of like little, you know, bookend where it's like, not bookend, maybe it's a bookend, but it's just like, we don't know, know what happened. And it like kind of adds a layer to it. And I don't know. It's just a bizarre film. Film. It has a lot of nudity, has a lot of weird, unpleasant things with it. Of course, there's a lot of you know non-consensual shit going on with a ghost um, entity. Was what the year after or something like that? Two years after. Um, so like, I mean, ghost rapists are, are I guess, kind of. I don't want to say a staple in the genre because they're not. But the, this this there's a ghost in this one, and it, it's strange. It's almost like their story or their delusions or the guilt of the father, whatever created or brought this ghost to fruition it's a strange film it's a bizarre film um like i said all the people in it are, are good looking so there's that and not all the nudity is uh, like you know rape stuff but you know it is ghost soldier aka tracking uh weird film weird film for sure like i said has a kind of same flavor as something like braid okay next up is the patreon pick and i think this was a jim simon and this is one good cop and this stars uh, Michael Keaton, um, Anthony LaPelge. Who's also in here? I want to. I know I'm going to miss somebody. Oh, it's got frickin' um, Kevin Conway and uh, Rachel Tic Tac or whatever her name is. Um, I don't want to forget uh, Renee Russo. Jeez, I can't. You know Rachel Tic uh, Tic who's in tons of stuff. Benjamin Bratt's in here. Yeah. So this movie I'd never seen. 
You know, maybe I saw part of it on television. Uh, this is 1991, if I'm not mistaken. You know, I really like Michael Keaton. I've loved Michael Keaton ever since I was a little kid and saw Batman and Beetlejuice and Dream Team, all that kind of stuff. You know, Michael Keaton, always enjoyed him. Always a good actor, always solid, never disappointed me. So, uh, essentially, One Good Cop follows the story of Michael Keaton and Anthony LaPelgi. La how do you say his name? LaPelgi? LaPelagia? I can't remember how you say his name. But they're these partners. They're overworked. They're exhausted. Kevin Conway's their lieutenant. And uh, Anthony is going through some real troublesome stuff his wife died he's depressed he's got three kids to take care of he's never getting enough sleep so uh we see them on the beat a while we see him getting a lot of fights you see there's this new drug on the street uh ice or something it's causing everybody to go crazy it's like uh, hyped up crystal meth right so one day they get called in and they say this is completely volunteer you don't have to do it but there's a you know a hostage situation here and the guy asked for you guys because he knows you you booked them once so during this whole routine situation here the trailer spoils all this but this is like 20 minutes in um renee russo is Ke michael keaton's wife she can't have kids um but what happens is uh poor anthony gets killed here he gets shot in the head trying to stop it he kind of loses his cool maybe lack of sleep stress whatever it is he dies michael keaton is clearly heartbroken clearly destroyed distraught and he wants to get back at the guy who's the drug pusher in the neighborhood who's this billionaire kind of south american kind of guy um but he basically essentially starts to, you know, start to take care of the kids because he's, he's the, you know, he's in charge of it in the will. His wife obviously gets attached and he's looking at ways to kind of keep these kids. It's going to cost a lot of money. And he has access to possibly get a lot of money if he brings down a drug dealer. So, right? So that's kind of what the plot is here. Um, there's a weird scene towards the end of the film with like 20 minutes to go where a character is pretty much introduced and they don't really hint at it. I don't think well, at least, that this character is who they you th they end up being. And you're just like, what the f Is this just like a weird, like, I was wrote in the corner so I did this? I don't know. It's very strange, very bizarre. It ends how you want it to end. Like, you really want it to end. You need it to end the way it ends, and it does, because uh, you really like Michael Keaton, so uh, without spoiling too much. But uh, the bad guys are, are solid. The main bad guy's really, really good. But Kevin Conway steals a show, you know, from Funhouse and Oz. He plays the O'Reilly's father in Oz. Kevin Conway steals a show in this one. He's really good. He's kind of a mean exterior kind of lieutenant, but at the very end, he has some really good moments. He has some really good, you know, a, a really good monologue and speech and everything like that that I thought was top notch. I mean, Michael Keaton's always good, always likable. Everybody's solid in here. Rene Russo is good as well, but really, the person who steals the show is Kevin Conway. As far as the special features are concerned, we have an audio commentary by director Haywood Gould, moderated by filmmaker Heather Buckley. Very cool. Surround sound and normal um, 2.1. One, it's about two hours long, but it's good, entertaining. I don't think most people will complain about this one. 90s. Um, how can you complain about Michael Keaton as a cop? you got to like it. I mean, he's cop and Jackie Brown. He's really great in that as well. So, yeah, check it out. Good stuff. All right, let's get into these questions, comments, concerns, all that good stuff. Ilk Vomit. Where's Jeremy, though? I'm working on it. I'm working on it. MJ. Um, Project Wolf Hunting was my number one horror film from last year that I've seen so far. Hope you enjoyed as much as I did. I th I'm sure I will. Uzi Suicide, 666. Worse of 1981? That's the question I asked last week. X-Ray, Hospital Massacre or Student Bodies? Talk about your pieces of crap. Watch your nose and make you sterile. I've seen them both. I don't remember hating either of them. But hey, who knows? Maybe I'll hate it now. Hudson, worst movie of 81. I have a bad feeling about this, but it's it's Galaxy of Terror. Awesome poster. Shame about the movie. No, it's got its fans, but I'm not one of them. Zombie Lake was bad, but at least it was funny. Funny bad. I don't know, man. I, I like Galaxy of Terror, but I do think like the last 15 minutes, you're like, what is this? What the hell is this? Um, Zombie Lake, I remember being a kid. 
And uh, I have a story about zombie, like I'll tell it when I cover it. But I mean, that movie was rough when I was a kid. But movie junkie reviews. I should probably watch Shockwaves again. Been a year or two. Travis Linscum. Uh, damn it, I forgot to send my 81 list. I'll see how mine lines up with the ones you read off. Ken Coakley. I got the Martial Law 1 and 2. I prefer Martial Law 2 because that is the movie that got me into Jeff uh, Wincott from Prom Night. One Jeff Wincott movie that I strongly recommend is Mission of Justice. Bridget Nielsen was the villain in that one. Jeff Wincott brothers Michael Wincott from The Curtains and the Crow. Oh, of course. And Dead Man. Um, Chad McQueen is the son of Steve McQueen. I know I mentioned that, but yes, he is. Uh, just a few years before Martial Law, he played a high school bully in The Karate Kid. <laughs> He's, yeah, I feel like, like I said, he never looked like a kid. I, I haven't watched The Karate Kid in 25 years. Uh, lastly, the professor whose name you forgot was Professor Toru Tanaka. That's right. He was a professional wrestler in the 60s and 70s and was tag team partners with Mr. Fuji. Holy shit, man. I loved Mr. Fuji. Well, he was a great villain, I'll say that much. Nick Mua. I probably hated him when I was a kid, but he's a very good villain. Nick Mua. Worst film of 1981, a difficult choice. The 80s were excellent. Uh, Vista Vis movies. Uh, still, I'm going to go with Omen 3, The Final Conflict. As good as Sam Neill is in it, I can't get myself to rewatch it very often. The tone of, is of the killings are unintentionally funny. Eaten by Jack Russell dogs. Yikes. I'm curious to hear the other picks. That's funny. I've never actually watched Omen 3 for some reason. I've seen 1 and 2, but not 3. Um, and I've seen the remake for some reason, but not. i never seen 3 or 4. Questions. The Omen film are notorious for being cursed films do you think there's any truth to these claims or is it all marketing i doubt it's marketing i mean could it be coincidence i'm not sure i'm really not 100 percent sure i don't know the story very well on the omen curse films i know poltergeist is considered a cursed film exorcist all those kind of things would you ever work on a movie that that might be cursed it depends how it was cursed depends if i believed in it depends what happened you know if six people got murdered on the set no i'm not working on that do you like larry fezenden's films i'm curious about his new werewolf film blackout i'm curious about his werewolf film as well because he kind of does like he does frankenstein he does a vampire he does the classic kind of stuff um i like beneath uh i like the last winter uh i've not seen habit which is supposed to be his most popular i mixed on no telling I absolutely hate Depraved. I think Depraved's terrible. Um, so, so I'm like mixed. I think Larry Fessenden as an actor is phenomenal. I think he's a great actor. I think he's a great presence, and I love him every time he pops up. Till next week, uh, hopefully we're getting some more homework. Okay. My tube. I put Frankenstein's Island as my least favorite of 81. I'll put it here again for reference. It looks like a movie that is meant to be tongue-in-cheek funny. It is acted straight. All the writing is straight. The effects also look unintentionally um, intentionally funny, but it's just never funny. Although Cameron Mitchell, wow. You get John Carradine as well, but there are literally women in leopard print bikinis and throwback set designs. For me, the tone just missed its to its mark. This is my lowest out of 61 uh, 1981 movies so far. Appreciate the enthusiasm and consistent hard work. Thank you. 60, uh, 61. I mean, I had that with Mama Dracula um, from 1980. I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, it's not funny. It's not clever. It's really terrible. It's really broad and stupid and never works ever anywhere. And that was the worst for me for 1980. Uh, Smudge, dang, didn't see that you were doing a top 10 vote for 1981. Why are you diving into 81, by the way? Because I'm just going to go through the whole 80s for myself. Uh, Tony Johansson, probably don't go in the woods. John Soloway is not happy. You take that back. Um, and he replies, I haven't seen it, but heard, uh, it starts off extremely strong, then goes downhill after that. Maybe not answer if you haven't seen it. Eh? Uh, so JP Andrika, I know it's not good, but I'm a sucker for backwood slashers. Uh, yeah, and John Soloway, oh yeah, it's bloody terrible, but hell, of li- but a hell of living dead kind of way. Yeah, for sure. Jonathan Edward Smith, don't go in the woods alone. Home sweet home and the survivor. Home sweet home is rough. Um, 
He says, bummer listing that since I had really high hopes for it, but everything it did was done better by Soul Survivor and some other ones. Started strong, but got pretty dull with the quickness. Rebecca Reinhardt, Omen 3 was pretty needless. Sorry, but despite its many flaws, I love Don't Go in the Woods Alone. Uh, Jeremy R., anything by Jojo Van Buren, which you never heard of him. That's an inside joke. A shout out to Brutal Massacre of Comedy. Jeff Keith, no such thing. I like the way you think, Jeff. Uh, Jarrett Vossler, Ronald Reagan. I kid, I kid. Okay. Stephen McGurvin, Oasis of the Zombies. There's Oasis of Zombies 81, too. I don't want to watch Oasis of Zombies and Zombie Lake. I swear they're trying to kill me. John Soloway, Porno Holocaust. Watched Erotic Nights of Living Dead last year, so I meant love for last year, so why not Porno Holocaust? Long live Jody Amato. Uh, Sean Bruckner, the, this one grossed me out big time. Uh, yeah, and John says, haha, I don't like to mix my horn and porn. Uh, Scott W. Davis, Home Sweet Home is really bad. You don't like Body by Jake, guys? Uh, Matthew Head, Night of the Zombies. That's not Hell of Living Dead. That's the Joe M. Reed one. Jeff Pinnell, Full Moon High or Piranha 2. Uh, Matthew Ball, Piranha 2 The Spawning. Cody C.K. Kitts, Home Sweet Home. Zach Schilwalter, Whatever Footage There May Be of Me Being Born. Okay. Cameron Scott, Omen 3 is pretty bad. Uh, Chase Vaughn, I've never heard a good thing about Porno Holocaust. Eric Spuddick. Uh, uh, might have to go with Final Exam. I mean, I'm a slasher enthusiast, so I still revisit it every five years or so. Just not the best movie, though. Yeah, I remember Final Exam watching it. I remember watching it. I don't remember it, though. Jonathan Edward Smith, Eric Spudnick. I would have included that one, if not for the last 30 minutes working overtime to make up for the rather dull first 60. It's grown on me over uh, over time. J.P. Andrika, it has a creepy vibe and a lot of character development. The director purposely didn't focus on the gore, which is odd. Why make it a slasher if you don't like them? Anderson David, uh, you broke my heart. I love that film. It's in my top five slasher films. Uh, there are some fun aspects to it. I just think the fact that we never know who the killer is and that enraged me upon the first view. I just liked it since. I did kind of enjoy the novelization. Maybe the film is due for a revisit. I'm due for a revisit. It's, it's getting a 4K release from Dark Force, of course. Ben uh, Wasden. I know a lot of people liked it. For me, it's Road Games because I thought it was boring. Mary Lily Lil. Um, Lily, sorry. Maybe not the worst film, but I found the nesting so very, very bland. Lisa Marie Cart. Cannibal Ferox. I also don't really care for Cannibal Holocaust either. Um, I asked her the animal violence. Bill Rodriguez is, uh, I can get Ferrex, but Holocaust, crazy talk. She says, overhyped in my opinion. Sorry. Um, so, like, I understand. Like, I'm a, the, I'm, Cannibal Holocaust is my all-time favorite movies. I like Cannibal Ferrex a lot, but those movies ain't for everybody. Let's be honest. Acting shocked that somebody doesn't like Cannibal Holocaust is kind of like, you know, it's just, you can see. Mark Humphreys, I know I'm the minority, but never been a fan of American War from London. Rebecca Reinhardt rightfully says, but this is the worst movie of the year. Come on. No shit, right? Not to be a dick, but come on. You guys, you see more bad movies than that. Um, Kari Sonnefeld, I think Graduation Day sucks. Hey, I just talked about that. Uh, Taylor Hyder, terrible movie. Scream 1981. Uh, Jared uh, Bachelor, I think Back to School, but I love it. Hmm, I don't think he... Back to School's not a horror movie. Even though Burt Young's looking pretty scary in that one. Brock Bones, The Omen 3, they should have stopped after 2. I agree with Don't Go in the Woods Alone being probably the worst movie, worst made, but I still love that movie. It's pure nostalgia, though. Becca Reinhardt, right? It's obviously bad, but it has its charm. Oh, and Brock Bones, oh yeah, it's dripping with it. Just the killer's performance and costume design makes it worth it. Sean Lynch, Night of Horror. Actually, the worst movie I've ever seen. It's like, uh, I've heard it's really bad. And he says, I've seen it twice, not by choice, mind you. Yeah, I've heard Night of Horrors on Watch. Well, JP watched it from 22 Shots, and he's like, oh, my God, so bad. And then John Noonan, my birth. Okay, guys, um, you know what? I'm not going to hop into the update with a special cut because we only have three titles here. It'll be rather quick. First up is going to be Heat. I just saw Heat. Remember the old Jim Gaffigan joke? Now I'm apparently 47 making jokes of old PG jokes from other comedians. Um, other comedians like I'm one. But anyways, Heat. Uh, yeah, everybody's seen Heat by Michael Mann. 
Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer, Tom Sizemore, R.I.P. Um, everybody's in this movie. Good film. Been years. Looking forward to watching it in 4K. Um, then we have Christmas, Bloody Christmas uh, from Joe Bigos. I love this movie. It's really fun. Good stuff. Um, not as good as Bliss or VFW, but it's really entertaining. And then here's a cool one. I imported it from Germany. Uh, Diabolic had it. And this is Confessions of a Serial Killer from 1985 starring Robert Burns, the production designer from Texas Chainsaw, as Henry Lee Lucas. Now, this movie's really underrated. And I believe it is the uncut version, finally. 106 minutes because there's been an HD print floating around that you can watch. Uh, it's been on the like the sites, everything where you go. And I was always like this movie, and it's the uncut version. And I have the old VHS that I used to watch. It was uncut. So I'm like, holy shit, is this actually the uncut Blu-ray? And I'm pretty sure it is. Because you got to be careful with German imports, whatever. Even if they say 18, they might be cut. But anyways, finally, I can watch this in uh, Blu-ray. It made my top 25 of 1985. It would have made my top 10, but it's a very strong year. This is a great film. It's really, this makes a great piece with Henry. If you watch both of them, you can kind of get a glimpse at, you know, this one's more true to the actual story, but both are really great films. Um, so this is Confessions of a Serial Killer. Um, yeah. Obviously, look at the cover. They're trying to, like, in the time when it was released on VHS, I believe it was closer to the um, Silence of the Lambs day, so they're like, they put this on there. Anyways, uh, we're out of here, guys. All right, guys, thank you very much for watching, and as always, have a good one. Mm.